All right, so this morning we're going to start with a little exercise. <clears throat> and I'm not talking about little exercise, like real exercise. You can keep your donut in your hand. Uh, a mental activity. Uh, so grab your pen if you have one. Um, you might be able to retain this to memory. Um, I'm going to ask you to give three adjectives. Maybe write them down on a piece of paper. Uh, you can type them into your notes app or something like that. Write down three adjectives that describe the state of your physical body over the last few weeks. Just three adjectives that describe how you have felt physically over the last three weeks to a month. Okay? Just whatever pops in your head, do that as quickly as possible. Now, secondly... I want you to do the same exact thing, but for your emotional state. How have you felt? What's been your emotional state for the last few weeks? Give me three adjectives, just descriptive words that sort of define how you would say you have felt generally emotionally, and you can kind of include mentally in that. And again, you want to just write down those Initial gut reactions. And then finally is this, I want you to write down three adjectives that describe the state of your soul for the last three weeks or so. Now, my guess is, and I think I'm going to be right about this, the adjectives to describe how you have felt in the state of your physical body, uh, tired or energized, exhausted, uh, sore, <laughs> beat up, um, um, run ragged, whatever it is you put down, those adjectives came fairly quickly. Emotionally and mentally, you probably had some fairly quick adjectives to describe that. But my guess is when it came to the state of your soul, describing how your soul has been for the last three weeks to a month did not come as easily. And why is that? And there's a couple answers to why we can't really describe what's going on in our soul. Uh, number one, we probably don't give it very much thought. It's probably the first time in a very long time, or if ever, that you've stopped and asked the question, how's my soul doing? What's the state of my soul? What condition is my soul in? And then because of that, secondly, we know less about our soul and understand less about our soul than we do any other part of who we are. Even though philosophers and theologians say that we're dichotomous, we have spirit and flesh. That's the essence of who we are, and our flesh will cease to exist, but our spirit, our soul will continue to exist. So really the essence of who we are, we know less about that than we do about the temporal right here, right now things, because... I can say something that will trigger an emotion in you, a happy one or a mad one or a sad one or an excited one. 
I can walk up to you and shake your hand, give you a hug, or accidentally step on your foot and hurt you. Those are things that we feel in real time. But we probably don't consider really what's happening with our souls. And then finally, as much as we don't want to admit it, we give exponentially more energy and focus and attention to our bodies and our emotions and our thoughts than we ever give to our souls. I mean, you're here in church, you're thinking, well, good grief, I'm here. What, I mean, what, you know, give me, like, cut us some slack. What are you, you're preaching to the choir here. It's, it's, I'm, I'm not saying we ignore our souls entirely. What I'm saying is that we tend to compartmentalize our souls in such a way that we don't remember that our souls are intrinsically sewn in to everything that happens with our bodies. That they, our soul is marked, it's, 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 it's stained, it's, 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 it's tattooed by every thought or emotion we have. There is nothing that occurs in your life where your soul isn't affected by it. So here we have the part of us that's really the most important part. It's the part that keeps going. It's the part that's eternal. It's the part that, that is touched by and affected by and impacting every other part of our bodies our minds, our emotions, our relationships are all touched by our soul. Yet, it's the part of us that gets the least amount of attention, the least amount of our energy, and it's the part of us that likely is getting the least amount of care and rest. And maybe it's because we think of our soul as something that's eternal, that doesn't need to go to sleep, that doesn't need to have a moment of reprieve and have a moment of rest and, and recouping, but how can something that's touched by every other part of our life that exhausts us physically and exhausts us emotionally, how can that part of us not also need rest, need recovery, need healing? After all, God is spirit, the Bible says. Any of the, the, the descriptions we hear of God about his eyes and about his hands, those are, those are just human characteristics we assign to God to give him a relatable quality, but the Bible says that God is spirit, so he has none of those things. He is simply spirit, yet he rested. The spirit of God rested. He is spirit, and yet he rested. And I want you to ask yourself this question, how many times have you said, I need to rest my spirit? I need my soul to take a break. I need there to be recovery and healing for my soul. And then we have a conversation like this and we start feeling a sense of guilt and tiredness because we may look over the course of our journey, our spiritual journey, and it isn't full of life and lightness and excitement and fun. It might be plagued. I've done some message series when I talked about sin and grace. So many of you were brought up in cultures and teachings that beat you up, that used faith to discourage you and trap you and manipulate you and, and guilt you into obedience to God. And so it might even be guilt that brings you here today. It might even be a sense of obligation, but not a sense of lightness and life and excitement that 
should be attributed to our spirits. Why does that happen then? And here's the answer. We do all of this to ourselves. We pile onto us the weight of rules and conditions and parameters that we set up and ceremonies and doctrines and liturgy and orthodoxy and religious laws that we think is going to help us be better followers of Christ, be more obedient, be less sinful. And so we just keep piling and we keep piling and we realize that's not enough and that's not working. So we pile it on even more and then our souls are weighted down our feet in mucky concrete holding us in place. Thankfully, there's Jesus who hates spiritual abuse, whether it's done to another or done to ourselves. And Jesus says this in Matthew eleven twenty nine through 30. He says, put my yoke upon your shoulders. It might appear heavy at first, Jesus is saying, listen, 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 I know what you think about yokes, but it's perfectly fitted to your curves. Learn from me because I'm gentle and I'm humble of heart, making a comparative statement with every other religious leader that they had encountered up to that point who was not gentle and who was not humble. He says, and when you are yoked to me, you're weary, worn out, beat up, deprived, depleted, dehydrated souls will find rest. Jesus said our souls need rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I love that Jesus uses this really negative in, uh, imagery. They were all uh, part of an agrarian community. They all understood what farming was. They understood what a yoke was. If I just said, uh, gave a car analogy, you'd all understand what a steering wheel is or, or what a gear shift is or any of those things. It's common vernacular, but it was a negative one. If I said punching into the time clock, I mean, nobody really uses a time clock anymore, but you'd understand that it means you're starting your work day, and it probably doesn't evoke good feelings. It evokes negative ones. So Jesus uses this purposefully negative uh, imagery, and he says, listen, I know what you think about yokes, and you've been carrying around this heaviness, but I want you to hear this. I want you to yoke yourself to me. And the reason he said that is because he wanted to communicate an image of him bearing the weight him taking all the weight of the yoke. I told you about uh, in the past my roommate from college, his name was Rob Schmidt-Gall, and he transferred over from Evangel and he was a star football player there. And I, when Lisa and I got married, I was probably 145 if I had just stepped out of the shower with my hair wet, right? Uh, I, I couldn't find a tuxedo shirt that was small enough, and so there's about a half-inch gap between my neck and the tux collar in all of our wedding pictures, right? And Rob was about 300, almost 300 pounds, but it was pure muscle, and he was huge, and Rob, one uh, a day, uh, um, it was the beginning of the semester, and a bunch of guys came in, and they would do something called a dog pile, where they just rush into your room, and about 10 guys pile on top of you while you're sleeping. And I'm very claustrophobic, and they thought that would be really funny. And Rob, who was brand new to the school, shot out of bed in his tidy whities And I just hear crashing, and I hear people yelling and I hear things banging and it's Rob just 
tossing bodies all over the place. Get off of him! (laughs) Rob didn't even know me, so he couldn't have liked me at the time. I think he just wanted to go back to sleep. (laughs) If Rob had said, put my yoke on you, I would understand that Rob being six inches taller than me and having 150 pounds on me, Rob would be bearing the weight of that yoke. And this is exactly the image Jesus wants us to have of taking on his yoke. And I want you to hear this. If your relationship with Jesus Christ, if being a follower of Christ, if being a Christian is not light and it's not free of burden, and there's a heaviness to it or there's an awkwardness to it. You haven't been able to find your rhythm. There's always missteps and you're always tripping and you're always finding yourself labeled and, and, and carrying and taking on the guilt of not succeeding in that relationship. It's time for rest and it's time for healing and it's time to let him refit that yoke on you. So grab your notes. We're going to do this quickly. We're going to talk about three ways to get a better fit. When the yoke of being a Christ follower isn't fitting me right, I need to, number one, change how I see his yoke. So there's prophets throughout the Old Testament um, who would, because God's spirit was not with each person, the prophets would communicate on behalf of God. And there was a prophet named Jeremiah that was communicating to God's people, and he was delivering some very difficult stuff because they had turned away from God. And he was delivering some very hard news for them that they needed to hear. But this was another situation where the people had started to see God differently than they should have, to mistrust him, to shift their trust onto themselves, to believe that they had a better take on their protection, their provision, and their prosperity. As we do today, they thought many times throughout the Old Testament that God was doing a poor job of delivering them, of providing for them, of protecting them, and so they started taking things into their own hands, and they would follow other gods, or they would just abandon God, or they would do anything they could to sort of take control of their circumstances. And Jeremiah told them this on behalf of God in Jeremiah 17, 7 through 8. He said, but those who trust in the Lord, he was given a comparative, you guys are not trusting in the Lord, but I want you to hear this, for those who will trust in the Lord, they'll be blessed, they'll be given favor. They know, those who trust in the Lord have a certainty that the Lord will do what he says he'll do. That's our biggest problem with God is we don't believe he's a keeper of his promises, Because he doesn't always keep his promises in the way we want him to or in the timing we want him to. They will be strong like trees planted near a stream that send out roots to the water. This is one of those where we kind of get lost. We're like, well, that's very poetic. Because they have nothing to fear when the days get hot. Their leaves are green. They never worry. Even in a year that has no rain, they always produce Fruit. Let me tell you, I'm going to go back to the analogy of our home right now where I have these very, very young plants and shrubs that we've just planted. And we're in this very touch and go season right now where I'm trying to get the watering right. 
I can tell when I'm not watering enough because they start withering and dying and some of them have just turned beyond being able to be saved. You know which ones I don't worry about? I have a giant tree that's 50 feet tall in our front yard, maybe not that tall, 40 feet tall in our front yard. It doesn't matter if it's watered, if it's not watered, the roots are so widespread and go so deep, it's finding its water whether I'm watering or not. And that's the analogy he gives them right there as he says, you see circumstances and they upset you and you start freaking out and you start running around trying to find provision, protection, and prosperity. And I'm telling you that those who know God and those who trust God, your roots are deep and they're always drawing the blessing of God even when circumstances around you are desolate and dry. We have to be able to see God as our constant provision. Listen to what David said in Psalm 119, 14, or 114. You, God, are my refuge, my shield, and your promises are my only source of hope. Let me tell you about David. He was a uh, notorious, famous, uh, uh, celebrated soldier. He had killed men personally that were multiple times his size. He had killed lions that had tried to attack his sheep and bears even. David was known for killing tens of thousands. He led great armies. Yet David saw God as a place where he could hide. What strange language for somebody who's a warrior who doesn't seem to be afraid of anything. When you hear David lament, when you hear David cry out, when you hear David complain, when you hear David process emotionally, David's always talking about how it hurts inside of his soul. These people are after me, but you've betrayed me, God. You've let them chase me down. He's not afraid necessarily of dying. He's afraid that God has abandoned him. And here in this moment, David says, you are a place where my soul can find rest. He uses military imagery, a retreat and a shield, a protection, a place of hiding from the enemy. But he talks about it in his soul. You have to be able to see that, number one, your soul is in desperate need for rest and healing and retreat. But number two, where you do that, with whom you do that, makes all the difference in the world. There's a famous passage we quote a lot, but probably don't understand the significance of it. Isaiah 26.3 says this, you will keep in perfect peace all who trust in you and all whose thoughts are fixed on you. If you're having trouble understanding why your heart, your spirit, your soul feels tumultuous, upset, unsettled, and not at peace, the question is this, where are your thoughts fixed? Upon what have you fixed your thoughts? News? Terrible, terrible idea. Just honestly, step back, pretend you're an alien visiting the planet, and watch local news, national news. You'd say, why don't you burn this whole place to the ground and start up? There's nothing good happening. There's nothing good to celebrate if you just simply watch. Go on social media. Get enraged by a video, comment on the video, teach the algorithm that you are a victim and a follower of rage bait, and you'll just keep getting more and more of that, and you'll begin to believe that that's the world you live in. 
But when you fix your thoughts on God, when you fix your thoughts on God, when they can't be taken off of him, you live in perfect peace. Number two is this, when the yoke of being Christ's follower isn't fitting me right, I need to, number two, change how I wear his yoke. So I'm going to guess that there are no first century Mideast agrarian practices in relation to how oxen are steered experts in the room. None. Okay. Well, there's good news because though I double majored in missiology and theology, my minor was in first century Mideast agrarian practices as they relate to how to steer oxen. They don't have, the, they don't have that major anymore. Uh, they found it astonishingly unpopular. Um, they, uh, but I want to talk about the role of the yoke for just a second, because it's a deceiving image. If, if you know what the yoke is, it's a large piece of wood. Sometimes it's kind of got some curves in it. Uh, rarely it'll be just a straight plank, but it's very heavy. It lets the oxen know that it's on them. They feel submitted to it, right? And it has them tethered to each other, locked into each other side by side. And so here's the deceiving part. We might believe that they are co-equals and that they are both leading that effort. And that is not true. There'll always be one animal who's larger, who's stronger, and who is leading. And the other is going along with them. That other may try to resist, may try to steer off, may try to do its own thing, may try to stop in its tracks, but because of the yoke, the stronger one will win. The stronger one brings the weaker one, the follower along with them. The yoke is meant to take away the free will of the lesser. So that they can't let their impulses, their laziness, their desire to not work get the better of them. The stronger one pulls them along and they continue to work even when they don't want to. David, we don't know at what part of his life he was in when he wrote Psalm 23. The famous psalm, we read it weirdly at funerals. But what we do know is how David was wearing his yoke at the time. I just referenced that throughout Psalms, you'll see David really just having a terrible uh, season in which he sees God as a betrayer, as he sees God as a, a deaf ear that's turned his back on him, as, which he's just crying out and he just believes that God has failed him and he's really in this woe is me thing. And I'm not faulting David. He had a lot going on in his life that would make me feel very similarly. And I have done the exact same thing David has. I've told you about times when I stood on my driveway, shook my fist at God and said, when I'm out on the streets begging for food, I'm going to tell everyone it was you. Right? Because we get there in those moments in our life where we, our circumstances have convinced us that God has left us. That is when that yoke is fitting poorly, but this was a season in which the yoke was fitting well. And David says this in Psalm 23, 1 through 3. Because the Lord is my shepherd, I have everything I need. 
He lets me rest in the meadow grass. And he leads me beside the quiet streams. He gives me new strength. He helps me do what honors him. Leave that up there for just a second. Look at the wording David chooses to use. He lets me rest. And he leads me. He gives me. And he helps me to do what honors him. David is submitted. David has yielded. David, you can tell the yoke is fitting perfectly. He understands who God is and he understands who he is. He understands who's leading this and he's fine with it. Because he says, where God leads me, it's good places. I have everything that I need. God takes me to the protected places. He goes on in this psalm and he says, God prepares for me a, a, a place at a table, at a banquet among my enemies. I sit protected even among those who want to do me harm. The way we wear our yoke is determined by who we think should be leading this moment in our lives. Listen to what Jesus says in John 10, 27 through 28. He says, my sheep, again, another analogy they all would understand, respond as they hear my voice, because I'm their shepherd. I know them intimately. I know them by name. I know every, 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 uh, every limp that that one has and every hair that that one has, and they follow me. I give them a life that's unceasing, and death will not have the last word. Nothing or no one can steal them from my hand. He's talking about being a kind of shepherd that we want to be tethered to. That we recognize his voice and when we hear his voice calling us away, calling us from what we want because what we want can often lead us to danger. Around corners and down hills and down paths that we don't know where they end up. They're attractive. We want to see ourselves down that path. We want to make more money. We want to be in this relationship. We want to do this and we want to do that. And God says, listen, just trust me. I can see further than you can see. I know more than you know. And if you'll trust me, I'll lead you. But depending on how you're wearing your yoke, you'll either pull against that. And you'll twist and you'll turn and you'll try to fight it or you'll yield to him. Third and finally is this, when the yoke of being a Christ follower isn't fitting me right, I need to, number three, change how I use his yoke. So I'm gonna concede this point feels a little out of pocket with the rest of the message, but hang with me, and I promise that I think you'll see the point I'm trying to make. Um, several years ago before there were LED bulbs, um, flashlights were bigger and heavier. Do you remember the big six volt square batteries, right, that you would put into this plastic thing and still the light would be like amber yellow and just you could only see about nine and a half inches ahead of you? Well, they came a long way and um, uh, mag lights were all the rage and I had lots of mag lights. I loved having mag lights. But people figured out that having a mag light, which had aluminum housing, with like five D-cell batteries in it could be used for other things than shining light on something. They were good instruments of protection to have that were legal to have in your car in case you found yourself in a moment 
in a neighborhood, in a situation that you shouldn't be in, you could pull out that mag light, which is about nine pounds, and you could use it for purposes other than what it was created for. So here's the point of that, is that almost anything can be misused, reappropriated for something other than what it was created for. And as a result, what we found is that in the church today, and please know that when I say in the church, if I'm talking about our church, I'll say our church, but in the church, I mean the church, the Christian church as a whole, which I believe could potentially be us if we're not careful. Where the church is as a whole is in a place of great danger. We have the potential to lose our grip on what our mandate and our purpose, our whole reason for existing is. Because what we have begun to do, and it's happened all throughout history, it happened back before Christ, it happened after Christ, it happened in the early church, is taking our relationship, the tether that we have to Christ, and using that, using that yoke to beat people into submission when they don't live in accordance to how we think people should live. So we strong arm people. We take this yoke in which we're connected to give ourselves legitimacy because if I just say something, you should not do this thing, people go, shut up, mind your own business. If I say, God says you should not do this thing, it gives some more credibility to what I'm saying, or at least we think it does. Here's the problem, though. There is absolutely no scriptural allowance for using our relationship with God to strong-arm, bully, or beat up anybody. Not in the Old Testament and not in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, listen to what the Bible says in Micah 6.8. This is Old Testament. The Lord has already told you, human, putting us in our place, you don't get to decide what God wants from you. God's told you what he wants from you. He wants what is good. He's told you that he wants uh, what he wants from you to do what is right to other people and to love being kind, to show mercy to others and to live humbly. That is obedience to God. Even in the Old Testament, before there was grace, a season of grace, a dispensation of grace, the new allowance, the new covenant of grace, God was saying, you, you don't worry about what I do with people. I'm telling you what you do with people. You have to be just and you have to be merciful and you have to be kind and you have to be humble. You don't get to use me to beat each other up. And then listen to what Paul wrote to the churches of Galatia. There was multiple churches. We don't know where all of them were at, but they, this was a regional area in which Paul was addressing an issue that needed to be addressed with all of them. He said, if you are a follower of Christ, 
Jesus, it makes no difference whether you're circumcised or not. Let me pause right there. Because they were mostly Jews who had converted to Christianity, who were now Christ followers, who wanted to guilt those, burden those, uh, uh, mistreat those, change those who had not go through the ceremony of circumcision and make them go through the ceremony of circumcision so that they could be better Christ followers. And Paul said, as a radically committed Jew himself, said, you do not need to be circumcised. You do not need to follow these rules. You're not bound by them. He says, all that matters is that your faith makes you love others. If we are using our yoke, misusing our yoke, do you think God is going to honor our souls with energy and refreshment and nourishment and rest and healing? No, we are going to exhaust ourselves swinging that faith to beat up others, whether it's the world or whether it's other believers, whether it's people politically, whatever we are on, what soapbox we're preaching on, what issue we're taking a stand on. Oh, we're so righteous. We're taking a stand. We're taking a stand. I think that may be one of our problems is we're never really bowing the knee of humility. We're always standing for something. Sit down, shut up for 10 minutes, and let God, let God get a hold of your soul. Because part of rest and part of the healing is to kind of scrape off these prejudices and this meanness, this judgment and this condemnation that we feel for others because we feel it for ourselves. Jesus said, love others like you love yourself. And you can conversely say that means stop hating others like you hate yourself. We, we, we point out things in other people because we have big obstructions in our own ability to see our own sin. We have so many blind spots, but they have an effect on us. They contaminate us. It's poison inside of us. And so we know deep down inside we aren't right with God. And so we yell at everyone else for not being right with God. And I love David because he, he just made it sound like, I just want to get inside this hole and be with you, God. I just want to be, be by myself and let you wash over me. Let you bring healing where there's hurt. Let you bring calm and peace where there's anguish and chaos. Can I tell you that you cannot love Jesus Christ and hate other people? You cannot be yoked to him and abuse his creation. You cannot be tethered to him and despise those who he loves. You have either broken free from the yoke or you are misusing and miswearing and, and misappropriating it so badly that you've forgotten what it is to fall in step with him and follow him and submit to him. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? And I just want you to have just a second to recognize that this may be you in this moment.
that you might be in this space where you say, Mom, my God, my soul needs rest. It needs healing. It needs, it needs bathing. I need all the stuff, the guilt and the condemnation and the judgment of myself and others. All the heaviness that I've been carrying around that's made this feel so hard. Jesus says it's light and easy to be yoked to him. It hasn't felt that way to me, and I want it to. And I've got to set down everything else and leave everything behind and just yoke myself to him and let him carry me. Let him lift my feet off the ground. Let him take the weight of all the burdens of the world. I don't have to police everybody. I'm not everybody's hall monitor. It's the job of the Holy Spirit. I just want to be a follower of Christ. That's you. Would you just slide a hand up if you've got the energy to do it and say, yeah, that's me. Man, my soul's weary. I need rest. My spirit needs rest. My soul needs rest. God, you know where each one of us is at. I don't need to tell you. I couldn't if I wanted to. I don't even know where I'm at. Bible says that our heart is deceitful above all things. My heart may tell me that all is right. And we might be like the string quartet on the Titanic, just playing and trying to make things seem and feel normal as the ship's sinking. But God, none of us want to continue in that unawareness, that, that lack of sensitivity to where things are at. We, we know that our spirit, our souls are neglected. We know that deep down inside. Now give us an awareness, a sensitivity, an alertness, a, a, a hypersensitive radar to not allow ourselves to move through another moment without realizing this thought is affecting my spirit. This thing that I'm doing in my body, this is affecting my spirit. This emotion I'm feeling, it's marking my soul. And when we can feel ourselves pulling away and twisting and turning on that yoke, let us just drop our shoulders, let out a deep breath, and lean in to your leading. But God, give us a sensitivity and alertness to when we're pulling, when we're pushing, when we're trying to get out ahead of you, when we're trying to turn directions, when we're not letting you lead. It's what exhausts us. It's what tires us. It's what scars us and wounds us. And just as importantly, God, let us not worry how others wear their yoke. Unless we're trying to help them get a better fit and just lean on you, help us just to be quiet. As your word says, to stay busy and live quiet lives. I think the church could do with a season of being quiet. And it starts with us, God. And that's my prayer for each one of us in Jesus' name. Amen.